Junker U-52, a historic airplane, is doing a sightseeing trip around the Swiss Alps when something goes terribly wrong. What caused this plane to crash while trying to leave a mountain basin? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And we back to normal. We back to normal. There's still a fan, but it's a different fan. Yes. You may or may not hear it. You probably won't hear it. And but that's if okay. you do, it's hot in here. It's hot in here. I'm back! Yay! Full-fledged. Huzzah! Huzzah! How was your break? It was a break. <laughs> what things happened while you were on break? Um, let's see. Miranda got a supplemental job. Yes. She also got a place. Yes. We got a dog. We got a dog yesterday. His name is Milo. He's an eight-month-old Aussie doodle. Yeah. He's adorable. I got glasses. Oh, yeah. That happened, too. Woo! And we're (laughs) both in therapy. Yay! Yeah, that, too. Yay. Taking charge of our health. Heck, yeah. Okay. Housekeeping. July listener stories are your celebration slash firework stories. Yes. Please submit those either on the website, on the form that we created, or you can just email it to us. We'll take either way. And that's it. I go think. be a patron. Go check out stuff. Buy merch if you want. Merch. We got the fun stuff. All that good stuff. That good stuff. Yeah, I think that I think we got everything. Yep. What okay. are we covering today, Nick? Okay. That's a complicated question. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> We are covering the U-Air, spelt J-U, Air, crash of a Junkers in 2018. So, Junkers is spelt J-U-N-K-E-R-S, so yes, it's a Junkers. But and it's... Yes, in English, I understand how funny that is. But it's <laughs> German. But so. it is German, and these are very old. Junkers is an old aviation company, long gone. And it does not have a flight number, as you might have noticed by clicking on this episode. Yes, but it is operated by a operator, a commercial operator known as U-Air. Thank you to our Swiss patron, Julian, for recommending this crash. This Swiss crash. So this happened on August the 4th of 2018. Not that long ago. Not that long ago. Like we said, this was a Junkers. This is a Junkers U-52 Slash 3M space G4E. Ugh. What a thing. <laughs> I Ever- call it a U-52. Yeah. And- it, it. Everybody just knows it as the Junkers U-52. Okay. J-U-52. That is what it is. Like I said, operated by U-Air. Had the tail number Hotel Bravo-Hotel Oscar Tango. So HB Hot. <laughs> That's hot. <laughs> That's some fire right there. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's on fire. Uh, well, um, no. <laughs> It was built in 1939. That's old. And we're talking about a crash in 2018. Yeah, that's old. This airplane be being old. It's a historic aircraft. It is a historic aircraft, and actually we'll talk a lot about that. Well, not a lot, but we'll talk some about that later. <laughs> this was a flight from Locarno in Switzerland to Dubendorf. <laughs> I love it. Dubendorf. Yes, Dubendorf. Also in Switzerland. So it's an inter-Switzerland flight. Domestic, one might say? Yes, domestic. And it is a relatively short flight, but it is through the Alps. So this flight was operating the return leg of what was a two-day trip after they had flown the reverse direction the day before. This is a 
sightseeing kind of what would you call it novelty yeah type yeah. flight where you get to fly in this old airplane and through the alps and kind of cool but the flight crew was made up of two very experienced swiss air force and airline pilots who were 62 and 63 years old the captain had 20,714 hours total of which 297 were on the type so not a whole lot on the junkers but he was a very experienced pilot overall the first officer also was very experienced at 19,751 hours. It's the most experienced first officer we've ever talked about. He had 945 hours on the type. So also not a whole lot, but more than the captain. And we don't have names. So that's it. So deal with it. Yep. It's done with. It's done with. Dealt with? Sure. Sure. <laughs> There was one other crew member on board, a 66-year-old flight attendant. That's old. <laughs> They're all over 60. I talk about her a little bit. Slightly. How big is this aircraft? Not big. No. Why do they need a flight attendant? <laughs> the flight was full, with a total of 17 passengers. Oh, well, it's big enough to have 17 passengers. So. And okay. three crew for a total of 20 people on board. So, yes, there's still some people on board. This is a tri-engine airplane, tri-engine piston. So it is uh, three radial piston engines, one on the nose and one on each wing. So Kind of weird compared to the stuff we normally cover. Yes. Vaguely similar to a tri-motor, but it is a low wing instead of a high wing. In aviation, that's a very famous airplane known as the Ford tri-motor. There's hardly any of them left even in existence, and I don't know how many are flying, but not very many. After loading the plane and preparing for the VFR passenger flight, the plane was not flying IFR, and as a matter of fact, they just didn't fly this plane IFR. Because it's a sightseeing. It is a sightseeing. Also, it's a tour. really old plane. It is. So, And this also allowed them the freedom to kind of roam about. They didn't have to follow any flight plans or anything. They could just kind that of... That could potentially be dangerous, though. Yes, but I mean, most GA operates in VFR territory. That makes sense. Yeah. Brendan only flies VFR. Yeah. Yep. Well, he doesn't have an instrument reading, so... Yep. The aircraft departed Locarno at 4.14 p.m. local time. The captain was to be the pilot flying for this flight, and the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. The flight took off from runway 26 right, and then made a 180-degree turn over Lake uh, Maggior? Mag Mag Maggiore? <laughs> Maggiore. <laughs> Some options. Don't pick your favorite. M A G G I O R E. Maggiore. That's what we're going with. Okay. The flight then began following the valleys of the Alps as they weaved their way north, slowly gaining altitude the whole way. The airplane almost immediately entered into a quiet zone. Yes, a quiet zone. What, what do you mean by that? Basically a noise abatement. So gotcha. They flew into an area where they are supposed to fly quietly. So fly high and power back so that you don't disturb the neighbors. So they almost immediately entered this quiet zone after takeoff, which was entered at a low altitude and with a very little separation with the terrain horizontally. So mind you, this is mountainous terrain all in this area. It's all in the Alps. But they... Entered said quiet zone maybe a little too close to the ground and maybe a little too near to the mountains. So they're surrounded. They are quite surrounded. Mind you, it's an old airplane too. It doesn't climb out very quickly or anything. 
At 4.45 p.m., the flight passed over Alp Natals and continued eastward into the Sylva region at about 2,500 meters. Yes, this whole thing is in meters and kilometers. They didn't... I make a couple of conversions in my part. Yeah, they don't do any conversions for me. So I didn't take the time to do those. So we're going in meters and kilometers an hour. Or would you like to convert? 8,200 feet. There we go. So they were climbing through 8,200 feet. 4.51 p.m., the airplane made a relatively tight left turn as it weaved through the valleys of the Alps, and they continued to weave until they reached the basin southwest of Pies Cygnus. It is a mountain, a peak, in the Alps. The airplane entered the basin on the west or left-hand side of this basin, so it's literally like a big bowl of peaks, and they entered into this bowl... It's like a half bowl, so there's one end is open, and they flew in from that open end, but they entered it through the left-hand side, or the west side, and now they're in the bowl. So they entered the basin on the west left-hand side while still climbing to 2,833 meters, which is the highest I talk about. 9,300 feet. 9,300 feet. The airplane made a slight right turn, flying past the Berghaus Nagens Lodge, the lodge on the side of one of the peaks in this bowl. As they did this, at 4.55 p.m., the flight crew made an announcement over the PA system, and and through headphones and such, to the passengers to describe the scenery they were flying about. As the airplane entered the basin, it was flying at 165 kilometers an hour. 89 knots. So 89 knots. So they're not moving very quickly at all. I mean, this is... Well, they wouldn't. (laughs) No, this airplane doesn't move super fast. It's a, you know, piston airplane, but... But even then, they're also on a sightseeing tour, so they were trying to take things relatively slow. Trying to see these sights. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, this is pretty average speed for your beginner GA airplane, though. So this is even slow for, I would say, a tri-piston airplane. As the airplane got much closer to the basin, the airspeed decreased to 135 kilometers an hour, which is slow. <laughs> Very slow. Uh, 73 knots. 73 knots. That's slow. That's, That's like extremely slow. what 172s fly. Yeah, like on final. <laughs> it's slow. That's slow. The airplane then dropped altitude slightly, which increased the airspeed by 65 kilometers an hour to 200 kilometers an hour. Or 108 knots. 108 knots. So now they're moving a little bit, but not still not much. As the airplane pitched back up slightly, there was also a drop of about 20 RPM in each of the three engines. 4.56 p.m. in two seconds, the airplane was at 2,742 meters, so it's dropped a bit. And all three engines increased in RPM by about 40, so 40 RPM up now. 4.56 p.m. in nine seconds, the airplane was over the main basin at 2,755 meters now, so they went back up just slightly... And they were about 130 meters above the ground. That's not That's really low. Much. <laughs> they were only 130 meters above the ground. That's 420 feet. They were only ish. 420 feet above the ground while they were doing these maneuvers. The flight crew turned the airplane and flew more into the middle of this basin while climbing slightly. 4.56 p.m. and 17 seconds. The aircraft reached an altitude of 2,767 meters, and thus was 140 meters above the ground at that point. The flight flew past the Shinglehorner. (laughs) 
to Shinglehorner. Yes. <laughs> the Shinglehorner mountain peaks, at which point the airplane began losing some altitude, dropping about 15 meters in six seconds, which isn't all that fast, but kind of. I'll explain it later, too. Yeah. The power on the engines was rapidly reduced 30 to 50 RPM each. In doing this, the airplane continually dropped, so they began losing altitude as well as losing their angle of attack, which we'll talk about in a moment. As the airplane was roughly abeam, the Martinslok, or a hole in a rock in the mountain, literally a hole all the way through, small hole, at an altitude of 2,766 meters, at which point the flight crew began a right turn while still descending, followed by an abrupt left turn. Their ground speed was about 170 kilometers an hour at that point. Which is 92 knots. Yeah, they were moving 92 knots at the time. The airplane's angle of attack became more and more dramatic as it performed these turns. So you may remember in our last episode what angle of attack is. The gist of it is that it's the angle of the nose versus the direction of flight. Not necessarily in this instance. Right. This is a little more complicated, and yes, you'll understand more why later. The airplane at this point was only about 125 meters above the pass. Not much at all. Only a few hundred feet. The roll to the left began increasing and increasing, even when the ailerons were fully deflected right. Uh-oh. The ailerons were then brought to level and briefly to a left turn. All the while, the airplane's nose began falling rapidly, and the left bank continually became more and more dramatic. The airplane began pointing straight at the ground, at the base of the valley, and a low-frequency vibration began to occur in the fuselage. The elevators were then deflected backward, and a right rudder input was made by the flight crew, but they were far too low and it was far too late. The airplane engines increased in RPM by about 30. The roll to the left increased dramatically, and the airplane was pointed straight nose down, almost perfectly vertical. 4.57 p.m., the aircraft struck the rocky ground in a vertical attitude at about 200 kilometers an hour at an altitude of 2,475 meters, or 8,120 feet. So I did have that feet conversion. Everyone was seated at the time of the accident, but due to the nature in which the airplane crashed, all 20 on board unfortunately perished. The airplane struck rocky terrain in clear daylight conditions and was completely destroyed. So it was just an uncontrollable roll to the left? I'll get into it. Yeah. But it yes, essentially. Essentially. A quick question. Yes. Because yep. it might be, I don't know, this plane's really old. Is it cable driven? Yes. Sure. Yep. Okay. 1939, not much in the way of hydraulics yeah, or electronics to drive so. those. This is a cable driven airplane. But by the it, way you said that, it's it has irrelevant. nothing to do with what happened. <laughs> Ultimately, like, no. Okay. <laughs> so this investigation was performed by the Swiss Transportation Safety Investigation Board, or the STSB. I don't know where the I went in the acronym, but... Yeah, I wondered that, too. Whatever. I think they just wanted it to be like all the other TSBs, so they made it the STSB. Whatever, I guess. I guess. Investigators had quite a bit of a challenge with this accident for an all-too-familiar reason. This aircraft was not equipped with any recording devices. No. Yes, it's a historic aircraft, which is the primary reason this was allowed. As such, investigators had to reconstruct the sequence of events based on radar data... 
pictures, video, and statements from eyewitnesses, and lastly, and perhaps most tragically, the recoverable data from 10 of the 44 cell phones and video cameras belonging to the passengers and crew on board. Yeah. Which were undoubtedly on. For the reconstruction, investigators got help from the forensic services of the Tonal Police of Grissons, which is the area the crash occurred, to recover the data from the damaged devices and then got the help of the BEA from France to actually analyze and compile the data into something more meaningful. One passenger had a GoPro operating on board and the BEA was able to recover the video in 4K quality and in a lower resolution. Combining the two left a couple of parts with corrupted frames, but it was otherwise usable. No, I was not able to find this footage. And they probably haven't posted it for a reason. Yeah. From this, investigators were able to perform a spectral analysis of the audio to determine some parameters normally recorded on a flight data recorder, but obviously weren't in this case. The primary thing they could garner was engine speed, or something close to it. Now, the U-52 is a weird plane compared to some of the stuff we're used to. It has three engines, one on each wing and one in the nose. They are operated rather uniquely in that the pilots aim to synchronize the speed of the two wing engines and then use the nose engine to make fine adjustments. Yep. Interesting. The tachometer instruments in the cockpit are then read kind of oddly. They have the normal analog gauges, but underneath are also digital displays for each engine showing the exact RPM. The center gauge for the nose will show the RPM of the nose engine, and then the two wings digital displays will show a value relative to the nose, like plus five, minus two, what have you. The video footage captured one image of the cockpit showing the nose at 1,727 RPM, the left engine plus three, and the right engine plus two. It's still kind of weird to me that this was captured. It's mind-blowing. Tragic. Yes, it is tragic, but it is mind-blowing having this level of forensic ability. Is that like some from someone's cell phone? This is It's from the GoPro. GoPro, yeah. So in the report there's actually a lot of little images taken from this GoPro as well as other things on board. And mind you, they did some incredible analysis and investigation. Some of the depictions they have in here are unbelievable. Yep. And that's because this report came out in January of this year. Of 2021? Yep. January oh. 29th of 2021. I didn't know that. I think it was January 29th. It was January something of 2021. So this one frame of definitive data became the basis for the spectral analysis, which became one key component of the animation of the crash. The other important information garnered from the video was that there was nothing unusual going on with the engines. No weird sounds, no anomalies, no faults. They also found that the analog tachometers were greatly inaccurate, and that these digital displays I mentioned were found to be way more accurate. Now, for another piece of the animation, investigators had to work with radar recordings from the multi-radar tracking, but even this wasn't the best since it was mountainous terrain, which can disrupt radar, so there are parts that have plus or minus 30 meter accuracy. Then investigators had eyewitness video and pictures, and in order to put them all to full use, they had to actually get a 3D scan of the basin that the plane crashed in, as well as taking a 3D model of a sister plane in order for technology to put all everything to scale and make an animation. The STSB released a video that we have linked on our website showing a full animation of the crash using this data. Their video is actually phenomenal. If you want to read more into how they made the animation, we will have that as a separate document linked on our website as well. 
Investigators alongside that part of the investigation also examined the wreckage and found that this aircraft was a ticking time bomb. Oh, good. Yeah. None of the three engines were capable of reaching the RPM specified by the manufacturer, BMW. The minimum required to yeah. fly. The then minimum. why were they flying the plane to begin with? Let me finish this paragraph and then you can freak the hell out. Meaning that the aircraft did not have the flight performance characteristics it was built for anymore. Additionally, investigators found extensive corrosion in structural parts of the wing and fuselage. In one instance, the lower spar of the left outer wing already had fatigue fractures and was on its way to failure. Turns out there was either insufficient or no surface protection used against corrosion. The manufacturer knew of the certain parts' susceptibility to corrosion and stressed the importance of corrosion protection, especially during partial or major overhauls, but these instructions were not implemented by U-Air. And we're talking about an airplane built at the beginning of World War II. This airplane is old. It needs to have some protection on it. Yep. They did not have any corrosion protection program, despite it being requested. In total, the wing spar, steel joints, and many rivets all showed corrosion, rust, pitting, etc. The rivets also had fatigue fractures. That was just the structure. Now for the engines. Wait, there's more? There's more. (laughs) Why are they flying the aircraft? There's more. This is, when I say ticking time bomb, I'm like, what? Oh. The cylinders had a network of cracks, and the chrome plating was peeling potentially into the oil. There were bond and top coats on one cylinder that had corroded and cracked and were deteriorating into the cylinder bore. Furthermore, cylinders were machine honed to a larger diameter than the manufacturer said, so the walls were thinner, creating a risk of engine failure. I'm honestly surprised this plane flew as long as it did. Yep. Because none of that contributed to the crash. None of that have anything to do with this. But, like, <laughs> if whatever brought it down didn't bring it down, then it was, one of those things would have brought it, it down. It was bound to happen. It's like uh, when you have a car that has a check engine light on for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of time before you figure out why that check engine light's on. You know what I mean? Yes. So all of that was a giant rabbit hole. Indicative of systemic failures in the airline, but not actually the cause of the crash. Now for a subject that never fails to make Miranda at least a little bit mad. Investigators determined from the animation that the plane's performance was a little funky. Part of that was probably due to the engines. But they decided to check out something else for this flight as well as all flights in the last two days. You know, the two flights. After analyzing the calculations, investigators found that both the flight the day before and the accident flight had flawed and incomplete weight and balance calculations. Excuse me? (laughs) Yeah. Even worse, there was no evidence of any consideration of flight performance during takeoff, cruise, or landing accordingly. They actually found this to be a systemic problem in that UAR's flight crews often didn't perform this pre-flight calculation even though it's required by, like, everyone in existence. Yep. Well, especially on this old aircraft? Are you kidding me? That's so important. I agree. The correct calculations found that though the plane was not overloaded for either flight, both had a center of gravity further aft than allowed by the manufacturer. Quote, It should be noted that if the mass and balance calculations had been performed correctly using the documentation provided or UAIR's flight planning software, the flight crew would not have been able to identify that the center of gravity was behind the permitted limit. The reason for this lay in inaccurate raw data and the flawed design of the flight planning software. These shortcomings represent a factor that systemically contributed to the accident. 
End quote. So they just didn't check if they were overweight or not. Well, they weren't overweight, but the center of gravity was further back than it, it was allowed to be. Well, then how, if they're not overweight, how did that happen? Was it just the dis- where all the weight was? Yes. Yes, the weight was all rear. Well, because of the passengers. Yes, and they had bags because a lot of them were on the two-day journey down and back. So they would go down, stay in a hotel, and come back. Yep, so this is great. Now, let's go into the real heart of the matter. The beginning of the flight was normal, though they flew low over a preservation quiet zone at 120 to 300 meters off the ground, which is actually really kind of rude because the public had asked that they stop doing that. (laughs) Rude. And the Federal Office of Civil Aviation asked Juair to tell their flight crews to stop doing that, and it it obviously had oh so much of an effect. It's also illegal. You know. They were getting away with it because it's an old airplane. They're like, ah, it doesn't climb like it used to. <laughs> Turns like, out it didn't. But. It didn't, but also that's not a good excuse for, you know, being illegal and dangerous. Then they turned over Ruschein, where a friend of the flight attendant lived. The flight attendant texted the friend earlier yep. to say that they would be flying over. They then climbed to 2,833 meters or about 9,300 feet, their highest altitude. During the approach to the basin, they had a ground speed of 140 kilometers per hour or 76 knots and an indicated airspeed of 180 kilometers per hour or 97 knots, calculated in with the headwind data that they had already. So it's still a pretty low speed, but they had a good headwind. Because of turbulence prior to this point, they had to start a turn to cross the pass, and they were only going to be 200 meters above the pass when crossing it. My anxiety while reading this, even knowing already what happened, was still high. They then descended 80 meters, gaining 50 kilometers an hour, or 27 knots, and now they were only 115 meters above the pass altitude. Mind you, the pass that they are leaving the basin from is the lowest point along the basin border, leaving the plane no other way to get out of the basin, despite it being the basic tenet of mountain flying that you always have an alternative flight path or a way to turn back. All three engines sped up by 40 RPM, and the aircraft gained 25 meters of altitude, but also losing airspeed down to 200 kilometers per hour or 108 knots. Oh, and they were starting to lose their headwind, further decreasing their indicated airspeed. The aircraft began to descend while flying past the Shingle Horner Peaks, hitting downdrafts of 2 to 5 meters per second or 4 to 10 knots, which are inherent in the basin area. Totally normal. The crew then made a right turn, then a left turn, with an indicated airspeed of 180 kilometers an hour, or 97 knots. Now, you've heard me say several times the phrase, indicated airspeed. This is different than ground speed because it also factors in wind, either a headwind or tailwind. This value is so much more important because it's used to calculate how much air is actually flowing over and under the wing, which is important to figure out how slow you can go before losing enough lift for flight, a phenomenon known as a stall. Ah. A good example of how indicated airspeed works, actually, is if you ever go look for videos where somebody flies, like, say, a Cessna in a 60 to 70 knot headwind, which it does happen, and I have done. And if you get that headwind high enough then your indicated airspeed will show you 60 to 70 knots, like you're moving 60 to 70 knots forward, but your ground speed would indicate zero because you actually are going nowhere. Pretty important because you can then just be like floating in the air, but you have enough lift to be in the air. It's important to have this lift, and a headwind is actually great, and it's kind of a cool little trick, but it is still gets you nowhere. (laughs) You could be moving faster in a car. 
I'm surprised that the airplane didn't just tear apart. Like, it yeah, sounded like... I, know. I think everybody was. Even, like, from doing, like, the turns and stuff. Like, how yep. did it not just fall apart in the sky? Pretty <laughs> much how everybody felt about this. World War II era engineering, apparently. The other important component to a stall is, as we mentioned, the angle of attack. This is the angle between the wing and the direction of airflow. Yes, direction of airflow, correct. Which is not necessarily always the same as the direction of flight. No. And if that angle becomes too big, there's not enough air over the wing, and a stall ensues. Their angle between the pitch and flight path at this point was 15 degrees during the right turn. Now, both engines slightly reduced in power, which investigators suspect meant that the crew was synchronizing the wing engines, as I mentioned earlier. Meanwhile, the pitch was increasing, pointing further nose up, and the flight path was descending steeper and steeper. They then entered an updraft. Why might this be a problem? That means the wind is now approaching the plane from below it. Yeah, the bottom. Yeah, while the nose and therefore wings are pointed skyward, increasing the angle of attack. Using the simulation as a reference, investigators figure it's possible that the crew had no idea they were descending because of the view from the cockpit and their descent was facilitated by the rearward center of gravity. We have a picture of what it looks like out their window and you can kind of see how it'd be hard to tell when you're looking at the sky if you're descending. Investigators determined that the wing had at least partially stalled. These wind shear conditions, for that is what they are, were not abnormal at all for this terrain. The report points out that it is one of the fundamental principles of mountain flying that the airspeed must be increased in turbulence and close to terrain so that wind shear doesn't cause a stall. Yep. The aircraft was only 44% above its stall speed when entering this part of the flight, which was not enough reserve for the turbulence they encountered. The crew then entered a stall spin because the left wing stalled at least to a greater extent than the right wing, making uneven lift and forcing a turn. It also doesn't help that the U-52 were known to roll towards the inside of a turn during a stall, during a turn, worsening the situation. The way to get out of this situation is to reduce the deflection of the elevators and move the ailerons in the direction of the roll, not the opposite direction as you won't get lift back if you do that. Pilots actually reacted appropriately to the stall spin, but were unfortunately too close to the ground. Far too late. Yikes. So we're going to go watch that video now. It's a it's kind of lengthy, but it is put out directly by the STSB, which is kind of cool. So I highly recommend you go watch it. Let me go take a break while we do that, and we'll get back to you with some findings and such. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Hello. Hi. So Miranda, what'd you think of that video? It helps everything make sense. If you have, if you're a visual learner, which I'm a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. but if you're a visual learner, I highly suggest you watch it. It's on our website because it kind of makes everything make a little more sense because you can see where they were compared to the bowl, right? 
and where they had to fly over and all that stuff. They also give a really good visual explanation of angle of attack and yeah. ensuing stall. Exactly. So. Important things. We're going to go ahead and start cruising through the findings because there are a lot. There are a lot, but I have narrowed it down and I still feel like there's a lot. So, I have chosen what I feel are the important ones. Their findings for the technical aspects. They found that the Certificate of Airworthiness listed U-Air's Junker U-52-3M G-4E aircraft in the, quote, normal subcategory of the, quote, standard airworthiness category. So that means this would be basically a standard airplane, a standard GA airplane. Well, according to the Swiss Ordinance on Airworthiness, VLL, valid at the time of the accident, U-Air's Junker U-52-3M G-4E aircraft should have been classified in the historical subcategory of the special category. So this airplane was completely misclassified when they registered it. it. means it fell under a whole different set of rules than it was supposed to. They found that the air operator commissioned organizations which did not hold the necessary certification to manufacture components for use in the aviation industry to produce spares based on pattern parts and then used these on the type U-52-3 MG-40 aircraft. So, they literally hired organizations to make spare parts for this airplane that weren't legal. Great. On top of it all. They found that a significant number of engine faults occurred in the 10 years before the accident. Over 10 years, the engines failed multiple times, they found. And this wasn't a problem, apparently. They found that the manufacturer originally intended that the HBHOT that's the tail number, engines, would run for 200 to 300 hours until a major overhaul. So they would need overhaul pretty frequently. That's expensive. Between 1985 and 2004, the air operator obtained approval from the FOCA, or the Federal Office of Civil Aviation, to extend the engine operating time to 1,500 hours before a major overhaul. I feel like that's just bad. Yes, I mean, most piston airplanes can go 1,500 hours, but you're talking about an old This airplane. aircraft whole, is like 80 years old. The whole reason that they wanted it to be overhauled every 200 to 300 hours is, first of all, older technology. Second of all, it's an old airplane. <laughs> it has to yeah. be maintained a lot more often. You shouldn't be trying to extend anything. Well, and they found, like, cracks and stuff in the engines. Oh, it's horrible. Like, yes, it needs to be overhauled more often. It's old. Yeah. They found that the airplane's engines sometimes required major repair work just a few operating hours after a general overhaul. So they found that the airplane had problems even immediately after being heavily maintained. So that's not a good sign on maintenance. Yeah, it might just be this plane needs to be in a museum and stay in a museum. <laughs> yeah. Just a thought. Yep. In the two years before the accident, the airplane's engines did not achieve the maximum RPM specified by the manufacturer during the static testing. So these engines weren't performing normally any time in the previous two years before the accident. They found that several cases of pronounced vibrations caused by loose propeller blades occurred during flights between 2012 and 2018. Uh, would you like to run that by me again? <laughs> Can you imagine if you're, you're like... Minding your own business, and your car gets hit by a propeller blade. Yeah, bad. Excuse me. Bad. But apparently that's just not a problem, and we'll apparently. just let this plane keep flying as an air transport certified. <sighs> yep. 
They found that the airplane was no longer able to achieve the flight performances originally published in the operating manual. At which point the airplane is not... Not flyable. It's not airworthy. They found that between 1984 and 2001, 41 service bulletins were issued for remanufactured components or parts to be reconditioned. Each of these bulletins was approved by the Federal Office of Civil Aviation. That's a lot to have to comply with. They found that numerous other remanufactured components have, however, still been developed without being accompanied by a service bulletin. No approval was obtained from the Federal Office of Civil Aviation for these parts. So, again, that's going back to they were using so many parts for this airplane that just weren't certified. Well, and that kind of dawns back to our partner episode where they were using uncertified parts. Yes, which is a big deal. They found that in many instances, the quality of the remanufactured and reconditioned aircraft parts was poor. Nothing to say there. (laughs) (laughs) They found that no complaints regarding the airplane were made during airworthiness inspections by the Federal Office of Civil Aviation between 2010 and 2018. This, I think, is really important because this is that oversight bit we always talk about. So the Federal Office of Civil Aviation is the FAA for them. Right. And they didn't note anything of airworthiness problems when they would inspect the airplane anytime between 2010 and 2018. But it is noted that there was a lot of problems with the airplane between 2010 and 2018. So they weren't doing their job. They weren't doing proper oversight. They didn't even notice that the airplane was registered incorrectly. Yeah, that's a boo-boo. Mind-blowing. They found that there were shortcomings in documentation and in the management of spare parts. They found that... The generally inadequate record-keeping was never challenged during inspections by the FOCA. So, during these inspections, they literally just didn't say anything. Even when they noticed that stuff was wrong. Yeah. They found that the consequence of persons simultaneously performing several roles at UAIR as a maintenance organization and CAMO, as well as Neflugmatorin AG was that the quality assurance processes were unable to develop sufficiently. So, more than anything, what they're saying is there's literally people were having to do multiple things at this company, perform several functions, which, okay, but it didn't actually help them keep themselves together. They were Processes weren't developed correctly because of this, and they weren't able to function as a company. Found that the FOCA's supervisory activities identified and took issue with some deficiencies in infrastructure, work processes, and the management of aircraft parts. However, most of these shortcomings had not been rectified by the maintenance organization. So even when the FOCA would say, hey, we noticed something, they wouldn't do anything about it. Airline wouldn't do anything about it. And the FOCA would never check again. So yeah, just keep it going. Yeah, just, it just means there's no, like, it's like when there's, you get punished... And you don't actually get the punishment. Yeah. Exactly. There's no checks and balances at all. Like, you know what's wrong, and they told you it was wrong, but they didn't check you, so you never did anything. Bad, but also whatever do we want. (laughs) Exactly. They found that the exchange of information among the employees of FOCA's Safety Division Aircraft Department regarding the supervised organizations was insufficient. There just wasn't communication, basically. The respective inspectors carried out supervisory activities primarily within their relevant areas of expertise rather than overall. They found that the FOCA had been lacking expertise on piston engines for some time. They didn't even understand piston engines very well. 
And that's a problem when you do oversight on an airline like this. So you might have noticed that most of those were directed at the FOCA, basically the equivalent of the FAA in yeah. Switzerland. They took issue with the fact that there was just no oversight on this airline. Well, and there wasn't. And that's how it was able to continue flying in the piss-poor state that that poor airplane was in. Yes. Like, literally, I'm so surprised that they were even able to get it to where they got it to. Yeah, so moving on to that part. (laughs) (laughs) They found that considerable corrosion damage was found in structural parts of the wing and fuselage. They found a lower spar on the left outer wing showed evidence of fatigue fractures. It's a matter of time. Our favorite. Welcome to the fatigue pocket. Yep. They found that the material, which is prone to intergranular corrosion, had insufficient or no surface protection at all. Which, that's going to happen when an airplane's that old. Yes. And it's outside in the elements. But they should be reprotecting it so that it doesn't corrode. Yeah, but clearly they don't take care of their airplanes very well. Nope. So. They found that the aircraft involved in the accident was not airworthy in a physical or formal sense. Oh, it was not. It was not in any way, shape, or form ready to fly. This is one of those few times where we can say at the beginning of the findings, this aircraft was not airworthy. This aircraft was not airworthy. It was not ready to fly, and it should not have been flying the whole time. That would have been, honestly, problem number one. But somehow that didn't cause the crash. No. Nope. That has nothing to do with it. Somehow that wasn't a causal factor. Which surprises me to no end. Yes. Arguably, you could say there was a little bit because the engines weren't performing very well. So the airplane, even though they could have still outperformed the wind they were dealing with. So it's still crew. It's still pilot air. They found that there is no evidence that the technical defects found on the aircraft and the inadequacies in maintenance were a contributory factor in this investigation accident. This investigated accident. So, again, there's that whole bit about, well, none of this mattered. (laughs) Well, and it didn't. So now we'll talk about operational aspects. They found that the base and flight planning software for calculating the mass and center of gravity exhibited deficiencies and errors. Okay. Yep. (laughs) That's how it had a bad center of gravity. The weight and balance is bad. They found that the flight crews who did not adhere to generally accepted principles for safe flying in mountainous areas when operating the type U-52-3M G-40E aircraft were often those who had trained as Air Force pilots. In particular... They systemically and significantly flew below safe altitudes and violated the minimum separation from obstacles. Literally, legally, they weren't flying this airplane correctly. That's so weird. I mean, so we kind of we kind of talked about like Learjet wouldn't let a long time uh, uh, yeah pilots let Air Force pilots because and they pilots. were used to flying planes a certain way. So I don't know. To me, like I feel like if you're in Air Force pilot, you should be more diligent in about some, taking care of the airplane than... In some regard, yes, but this was also... I mean, this was an aging crew. I'm not going to call them old, but they were an aging crew. And they were, yes, former Air Force pilots, and they were former airline pilots. They were very experienced, but they were flying this airplane, obviously for fun, but like it's just a toy. Yeah. And it wasn't. No. There were serious consequences to the not. way they were flying this airplane. And that's the whole problem. And they were saying, basically, they weren't flying this airplane in any sort of safe way, especially in mountainous terrain. There is a very specific procedures for flying in mountainous terrain. Which I brought up a couple times. Yes. And in theory, if they were to be flying this airplane correctly, they shouldn't have ever even been close to this bowl. They should have been well above it. Because they didn't have a way out. 
Yeah, they didn't have a way out, and there was no minimum distance from the obstacles. Well, and there's no backup. Yeah. Right. There's no alternative flight. They, they literally turn around. Yeah. Even if they wanted to, the bull didn't have enough space for them to make a 180 degree turn. So that was bad. There was only one way out and they were never going to make it. This is also a route that they have flown before, by the way, and have narrowly missed getting out of there. So this wasn't the first time that they encountered such a situation. It was a matter of time. It was pretty much a matter of time. They found that during this investigation, the air operator's management and monitoring of flight operations were identified as ineffective with regard to the known risks and the violation of rules. They knew they were doing stuff wrong. Yes. And they just didn't care. Or at least it feels that way. Like nobody cared. Yes. The the federal the, authority didn't care. The level of... Airline didn't care. The levels of authority that it took for this entire flight to just happen... Yeah. ...is insane. Yep. It kind of upsets me, too, that, first of all, they... I, I don't know the pilots, right? I don't know if they knew how bad the airplane wasn't like how bad it was yeah, this was pretty much a single airplane operation they should probably know yeah they i usually would, think. would know everything about that airplane but so that all being like let's say they had no idea how bad the airplane was mm-hmm. you have people on board it's yep. not just you you have people that you are in charge of basically on board and you didn't do the proper calculations and you went into a place that you probably shouldn't have gone into. Right. And now you've You're cost dead. all these people their lives because you decided not to be competent enough to make sure that this airplane was in a safe situation. Yeah, so that's kind of the next point here. I'm surprised they didn't put this one under crew, but that's okay. They found that experienced flight crews who often made mistakes regarding basic flying skills, airspace violations, non-compliance with basic rules during flight operations, showed deficits in terms of operation-specific training and collaboration, or crew resource management. Hell yeah. Ta-da. 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 So, I only picked out one from the flight crew section. We're getting through these. There's not a whole lot more that I have selected. They found that the behavior of both pilots shows that they regarded some rules for safe flight operations as not mandatory for themselves and were willing to take high risks. No bueno. In an old airplane with an aging crew, mm, sorry, but we have to be a little bit judgmental because there's a lot of risk involved with flying the airplane that way anyway, and then you've added a few more factors that just, not, not good, not good. Not great. Nope. As for the accident flight, they found that the flight crew chose a very high-risk flight path, which, due to the low height above ground and the lack of space to turn back, did not allow any exit routes or room for correction in the event of errors, malfunctions, or weather effects. And that's exactly what happened. They encountered weather, and they couldn't do anything about it. They found that the flight crew piloted the aircraft at a speed that was too low for the chosen flight path and was therefore dangerous. The airplane was just slow the whole time. It was just too slow. They found that flying into weather conditions usual for high mountain terrain in summer with inadequate safety margins led to at least a temporary loss of control of the aircraft. They probably could have recovered if they had been 1,000 feet higher. Yeah, if they were higher. They weren't so close. Would have been a really unpleasant experience, 
No, but, but they would have recovered. Well, have recovered. I hesitate to say that because pulling that many G's with the fatigue fractures that I they know, had. I know. That's yeah. like one of the things like, well, what if it happened? And then right. the entire aircraft disintegrated. Well, and more than likely it would have overstressed the airplane because it's not that moment where they're actually falling straight down. It's, it's that the moment. Recovery. It's, yeah, it's the recovery. It's when they try to get back up. It's yeah. when you pull that arc is when you start putting G's downward on that spar. That's nasty. And then... The spar had fractures. Yep. Bye-bye spar. And then bye-bye airplane. (laughs) Yep. And then it wouldn't have mattered anyway. There's a couple videos, actually, example of that. They're awful, but it does happen. They found that during the attempt to regain control of the aircraft, an accelerated stall occurred, which led to an almost vertical impact. That's why they fell straight down. Airplane was in just a bad situation. Paperweight. They found that at the time of the accident, the mass of the aircraft involved in the accident was within the limits specified in the aircraft flight manual. The center of gravity, however, was beyond the rear limit. So again, they were too far rearward, which also didn't aid in their recovery because the airplane wanted to just be rear heavy. Yeah. They found that at the time of impact, the full throttle limiter was set to on, which shows that the engines were not running at the highest possible speed. So even if they wanted to go full throttle, it wouldn't let them. A couple more. These are under general conditions. They found that the turbulence in the lee of the Cygnus Pass was not unusual for an afternoon of increasing northerly wind and included significant areas of updraft and downdraft, which posed a hazard for a flight in close proximity to the terrain. Pretty it's evident. just one of those, like, it's normal. Yeah. You yeah. should know. Flying if, in the mountains. Especially if you fly this route. Multiple especially, times. Especially because this was a warmer than normal day, so the winds are likely to be higher because you're going to have a shift in pressure. It's just one of those, you should know. Yes. But it feels like you didn't know. <laughs> right. One more finding. They found that the majority of the air operator's procedures, and in particular its safety management system, were only formal in nature and were not properly applied. There you go. Yep. A lot of this was kind of repetitive, everything else that I left out. I literally left out probably half of the findings. Because there was so much of it, and a lot of it was kind of tack-on or set up for a following finding, so most of it was not necessary. Now what I'm going to do is not skip anything and read this entire page and a half causes section. Enjoy. <laughs> for your enjoyment and entertainment. This will be one of the longest The dramatic runs. reading of the probable causes of this accident. This will be one of the longest ones ever. If you want, you can just look up the report yourself and read it and not listen to me drone on for the next few minutes. Be my guest. Be. Okay. <laughs> the direct cause. The accident is attributable to the fact that after losing control of the aircraft, there was insufficient space to regain control, thus the aircraft collided with the terrain. The investigation identified the following direct causal factors of the accident. The flight crew piloted the aircraft in a very high-risk manner by navigating it into a narrow valley at low altitude and with no possibility of an alternative flight path. The flight crew chose a dangerously low airspeed as regard to the flight path. Both factors meant that the turbulence, which was to be expected in such circumstances, was able to lead not only to a short-term stall with loss of control, but also to an unrectifiable situation. Directly contributory factors. The investigation identified the following factors as directly contributing to the accident. The flight crew was accustomed to not complying with recognized rules for safe flight operation and taking high risks. The aircraft involved in the accident was operated with a center of gravity position that was beyond the rear limit. This situation facilitated the loss of control. Systemic cause. The investigation identified the following systemic cause of the accident. 
the requirements for operating the aircraft in commercial air transport operations with regard to the legal basis applicable at the time of the accident were not met. Systemically contributory factors. The investigation identified the following factors as systemically contributing to the accident. Due to the air operator's inadequate working environment, it was not possible to calculate the accurate mass and center of gravity of its U-52 aircraft. In particular, the air operator's flight crews, who were trained as Air Force pilots, seemed to be accustomed to systematically failing to comply with generally recognized aviation rules and to taking high risk when flying U-52 aircraft. The air operator failed to identify or prevent both the deficits and risk which occurred during operations and the frequent violation of rules by its flight crews. Numerous incidents, including several serious incidents, were not reported to the competent bodies and authorities. This meant that they were unable to take measures to improve safety. The supervisory authority failed to some extent to identify the numerous operational shortcomings and risks or to take effective corrective action. Other risks, the last section. The investigation identified the following factors to risk which had no demonstrable effect on the occurrence of the accident, but which should nevertheless be eliminated in order to improve aviation safety. The aircraft was in poor technical condition. You don't say. (laughs) The aircraft was no longer able to achieve the originally demonstrated flight performance. The maintenance of the air operator's aircraft was not organized in a manner that was conducive to the objective. The training of flight crews with regard to the specific requirements for flight operations and crew resource management was inadequate. The flight crews had not been familiarized with all critical situations regarding the behavior of the aircraft in the event of a stall. The supervisory authority failed to identify numerous technical shortcomings or to take corrective action. And lastly, the expertise of the individuals employed by the air operator, maintenance companies, and the supervisory authority were in parts insufficient. Okay. All of that. I'm going to go chug a glass of water. (laughs) Yeah, that was all just the probable causes. They don't even say probable. They're like, no, this is the cause. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a direct cause and a bunch of other causes that cause the cause. I should say, they did throw in this little disclaimer because they did not say probable cause. I will read it now just to cover my butt. In order to achieve its objective of prevention, a safety investigation authority shall express its opinion on risks and hazards that have been identified during the investigated incident and which should be avoided in the future. In this sense, the terms and formulations used below are to be understood exclusively from the perspective of prevention. The identification of causes and contributory factors does not, therefore, in any way imply assignment of blame or the determination of administrative, civil, or criminal liability. Which holds true for the entire ICAO. Or any pretty much any investigative like, you can't, authority. You can't use a actual like NTSB report or any kind of report like that and as like a lawsuit. legal yeah, as a legal right. backing. The like, only time you can't do that. You can is if any of that evidence goes to the FBI and they make their own report. Then it can be legally upheld. So my question with this, because it's specifically come up, there are people who are already suing United right. over UA-328, mm-hmm. which I'm like, you should wait till the NTSB report comes out to find out who who's actually to blame, but then it's like... Yeah, but the NTSB can't really place blame. They can say what happened. And ultimately... So how does that work for a lawsuit? Ultimately, all they can do is state the facts, and then if they find that those facts are worth anything... So... It can be legally used... 
the sort of, evidence can be used, but the, the evidence can be used as a court of law, but yeah, the cause cannot be. Yeah, okay. so they can't say it was the pilot's fault because the NTSB said that it was the pilot's fault. They can say, according to the facts outlined in this report, it appears it that is the pilot appears was at fault. that it's the pilot's fault, or it's United's fault, or whatever. Right. Which I don't think it is, but. No, no. Anyways. We've talked about that before. <laughs> so, but it's interesting because they do put in there a few key words. Opinion. <laughs> which is important because this is put together by a board and this is just their opinion on the things that happened. They're using the facts to formulate opinions. And then uh, that it's not to be used as any sort of administrative, civil, or criminal liability. Which is important. They're not you placing blame. Yeah. You can't use this in a court of law. They're placing blame without placing blame. Right. <laughs> like they're like the the thing they said in there about the pilots, you know, flying the aircraft irresponsibly. Like you can't use that to like sue the pilots' families or whatever. You can't do that. Right. Okay, so we're moving on to the safety recommendations, which it looks like a lot in here, but mostly that's because they list what the problem is and then they list the recommendation after that, which is kind of silly. But it oh, works. We can get we we get the point. <laughs> there are <laughs> There are a lot. But the gist of this, it starts mostly with the maintenance of the airplane. Because <laughs> it was atrocious. And the operator. So there's two other airplanes that operate in Switzerland, the same, two Junkers. And they basically just assume, and they state this outright, due to the sister aircraft, HOP and HBHOS, having the same year of manufacture type of operation and operating hours, it must be expected that they have similar defects. So we're going to assume you took as crappy care of these planes yep. as you did the plane that crashed. They literally just assume the other two airplanes are bound to fall apart immediately as well. So their recommendations are to create measures and safety management systems and take steps to properly maintain this airplane, expensive as that may be. That is the name of the game you play when you deal with historical aircraft. And... They want to make sure that all these problems are identified, written down, and fixed. Importantly, fixed. So again, putting in place things like safety management systems at the operator. But then also going on to the FOCA, the FOCA, and their role in this. They're not doing audits properly. They're not doing inspections properly. They're not doing any oversight of the airline properly. So they actually placed several recommendations in here on how to better take care of these uh, operators, to better make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, to better understand piston airplanes, and to do a lot more oversight, have a lot more say when these things are found these during inspections, and to do more inspections. Making sure that communication is a lot more open between the FOCA and the the operators, as well as within the operators and the maintenance and pilots, things of that nature. Making sure that the airplane is registered correctly. What a concept. Yeah, this is a big thing. They recommend making sure that the airplanes are registered correctly. Because when they originally registered this airplane in Switzerland, okay, it did fall under a normal category. But the rules changed. And then they never did the registration correctly. And that was never caught. In an audit, in an inspection, during registration, didn't matter. Would the... Manufacturing standards have changed? The manufacturing standards, not necessarily. But, but maintenance standards? But the maintenance standards change for those airplanes, and the what you can do with them also changes. It doesn't mean that they can't haul the passengers, but it significantly changes 
their requirements to be able to fly passengers versus operating as a normal air carrier. Would you say it's stricter? It is usually much stricter because it requires them to do a lot heavier maintenance. It doesn't allow them to extend hours the way that they do. And that's one of their other safety recommendations is to bring this back down from 1,500 hours to 200 to 300 hours on the engines. Make sure that they're actually doing maintenance. Where do they even find engines? For those, you pretty much just have to manufacture parts or have them remanned by a professional engine shop. Making sure that the crews always follow actual safe guidelines, making sure that they understand critical flight conditions, making sure they understand how to feel a stall coming on or how to handle mountainous terrain and never break the rules. Just don't break the rules. Just don't don't do those things. Don't engage in high-risk activity. Yes. Especially in very, very, very old aircraft. I understand wanting to show off. It's a cool experience for these people getting to fly in an old airplane. And wow, look at the train. It's so cool. It's close. It's amazing. But also really unsafe. people died. died. Yep. We have a shirt. You can get it. And a puzzle. You can get that too. I keep forgetting that one. So from there, they have a whole section about the things that did change afterward. And most of it goes along with the recommendations. It's the inspections of the other airplanes, um, safety management systems, audits, things like that. So ultimately, it changed a lot in Switzerland, I think, the way that they handle these historic airplanes. But it's still a conversation we're having around the world because, for example, we had our B-17 crash in 2019 in Hartford and Connecticut. Connecticut. In Connecticut. And it's really unfortunate, but they kind of found some very similar patterns between that airplane and the Junkers, where the airplane just wasn't maintained properly. Because it was old and it's expensive to maintain, which I get, but... But if you're going to fly it... If you're going to fly it with people on board, in specific, paying people, I understand that they pay a lot of money to be there. I understand it's really expensive to operate, but you... It's the name of the game when you deal with historic airplanes. If you want to fly them, it is a pain, but you have to maintain them. And it's going to be much harder to maintain than a normal airplane. It's just how it is. Yep, just how it is. It's the name of the game, friends. Yeah. So that was the Junkers crash? The U-Air Junkers 52 crash of Hotel Bravo Hotel Oscar Tango. Yep, HB Hot. And by the way, this airplane has been in several movies and TV shows. It was, I think, most famously in the movie Valkyrie in 2008 as part of Hitler's transport. It was in several scenes as one of the airplanes in the background. This plane? This plane. Ten years before the accident. Oh. This very airplane. Well. All right, friends. Thanks so much for listening. As always, thanks to our patrons. If you want to know what's included with patronage for us, go ahead, check out the website or check out Patreon. You literally can just look up Hard Landings Podcast. We'll pop right up with the normal logo. Yep. And uh, you get merch if you do that. Speaking yep. of which, check out the merch page on the website and order some merch. <laughs> I will be ordering more merch for myself here in the next bit. I want more shirts. I want a water bottle eventually. They're nice water bottles. They're mm-hmm. great water bottles. I know. Christy and I use ours all the time. All the freaking time. I know. I use your water bottle all the time. Yeah, we use it on travels <laughs> and stuff. It's Gone through a lot. It's been Already. through a lot of states, actually. Already. And it's only like a month and a half old. <laughs> Make sure to send us your stories for July. 
Much appreciated. Again, if you don't have something that fits the theme, just send us a story. We'll read it. Send us anyways. We want stories. Please. I think someone sent us a link to a bunch of stories. Don't do that. (laughs) Because we need to figure out which ones are yours and which ones you want us to read. So, like, physically send it to us. You can copy and paste it into an email. People have sent us PDFs. I'm fine with PDFs. I'm fine with Word documents. I don't care. Long as it's your story and you told it. Right. We just want to, you know, yeah, have make sure that we can read them and put them so that they're organized because we it try makes it easy, easier for us to read. Thanks everyone for listening, and have a safe and healthy week. We'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.